Welcome to Pick a Little, Talk a Little, the podcast where we talk about musicals one show at a time, and we inevitably make the mistake of trying to impersonate the terrible accents in said musical. With me today is... It's Izzy, your brother. Thank you so much for coming back, Is Our Assassins episode was so good. I had so much fun. We are so weird. Izzy, what musical are we doing today? We are doing My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady. No, My Fair Lady. You know what? We don't have to do this. Yes, we do. My Fair Lady is the musical based on the play Pygmalion by George Bernard Shaw. It was originally on Broadway in 1956. Music by Frederick Lowe. Lyrics and book by Alan J. Lerner. So it was, it's arguably Lerner and Lowe's best known musical. I mean, maybe Cam. I mean, it's certainly better than Camelot, but we'll, we'll get to that. So to start us off... As for our personal associations with the musical, I think you and I are more or less on the same page in the sense that our parents played it in the car a lot to shut us up on long car rides. Listening to it was like a blast from the tape deck past. We usually listen to the movie soundtrack, and in preparation, I dove into the OBC and just slightly different that everything was a little bit off. I watched the movie a zillion times because Audrey Hepburn is... You know how I am with Audrey Hepburn. Did you see much of the movie? We watched the movie together many times. Okay, cool. The movie is very close to the theatrical text, but I did also read the libretto in preparation for this episode so that people wouldn't be like, you only saw the movie, you don't count. Izzy, have you read any Shaw or Pygmalion specifically? I have not read Pygmalion or Shaw, but in preparation for this, I read the afterword that Shaw wrote for Pygmalion in order to make clear what his intentions were for the ending, and we can talk about that when we get to the ending. Shaw has the distinct privilege of being one of the only people to have a work of theirs adapt into a musical and to appear as a character in a musical. I will get this out of the way and say we are not going to talk about Julie Andrews versus Audrey Hepburn. Can we just agree? They both sometimes kind of fail with that Cockney accent. We will get to this. If there's one thing that we take away from this episode of this podcast... It is that the one flaw in this musical is that if Henry Higgins went to see the musical, he would leave like five minutes in. He'd be like, that is not what anyone should sound like. Let's get into the plot so we can get down to the song list, so we can get to the characters, so we can discuss why Henry Higgins is the, the worst. The best worst? The best worst. He's the best at what he does, and what he does isn't very nice. So... It takes place in England in the 1910s, Edwardian era. Our first scene is at Covent Garden, and we pretty much immediately meet Eliza Doolittle. She's this ruffian on the street selling flowers. She bumps into this rich guy who knocks her flowers out. He's an idiot. He happens to be Freddie. So the first line in this musical, in the libretto, I'm going to read it out, Izzy, and then I'm going to ask you to pronounce it back at me phonetically. A-A-A-O-O-O-W-W-W. <laughs> that word is going to come up every couple of pages as long as Eliza's talking with a Cockney accent. Can we just establish right now that we're not going to try? I don't want to end up like Dick Van Dyke. So Eliza is sort of upset. She's loud. She's dirty. She's cockney. 
Freddy, who we won't hear from again for a while, leaves with his mom, and she tries to sell flowers to a bystander. And someone points out to her, there's a man who's writing down what you're saying. And she immediately starts panicking. And here was the first time that rereading this, I thought, oh, there's something that I missed. There's a lot of weird stuff about either literal sex work or selling one's body in this musical. Apparently, a lot of the book of My Fair Lady is taken directly from Pygmalion. Oh, absolutely. Like when we word. say that Lerner did the libretto, they say it, the credit is adapted by. It's really just entire descriptions and stage directions. Yeah, and so, I mean, that's also going to, I think, cause some problems for the show. Sometimes George Bernard Shaw's intentions and intentions of Lerner and Lowe clash in places. Yes. But just so you know, I actually learned recently that George Bernard Shaw wrote a play explicitly about sex work, right? Where he tried to, like, call out the hypocrisy. It was called Mrs. Warren's Profession. I haven't read oh, it. Oh, yeah. Right. So that's not unreasonable for Shaw. So these themes certainly come to play here because Eliza starts panicking when a man is taking down what she's writing and she says, no, I'm, I'm only selling flowers to this man. That's all there is. If you arrest me, then it'll ruin my reputation. Then I'll have no choice but to go to the streets. And this is just said very matter of fact off the cuff that when you're a little kid, you do not pick up on it. The man is Henry Higgins. Henry Higgins says he's just taking down what she's saying, he's not a cop, and everyone starts gathering around a crowd is forming, and every time someone says something, he can tell them exactly where they're from. And everyone's like, wow, how's he doing it? And Eliza's just freaking out. First, okay, Eliza is ultimately going to have to choose between Henry Higgins and Freddie Einsford Hill. Higgins is like twice her age, Freddie is her age. I will just mention this now, just so we can get that over with. Not that there is anything wrong with that, but just as a thing to think about when she's deciding about what kind of life she wants to live. So Higgins, to make fun of her and then sort of do his little I am thing, I guess, sings our first song in the musical, which is why can't the English teach their children how to speak? Well, why can't the English? It's such a good song, though. <laughs> are there any bad songs in this musical? Can we just get that out of the nope. way? No, nope, there are no bad songs. There are literally no bad songs in this musical. It's so good. Here's what I think is very interesting Higgins, so we all know it's like, oh, he's a talk singing character. Every time he's rude to, say, Eliza, I'm like, but she can sing and you can't. Like, I know it's the sort of actor, character, and, and artistic choices, but he and Pickering, who will get to, like, talk at each other, talk sing at each other all the time, and Eliza has this gorgeous soprano, and they're like, oh, we're better than you. And I'm like, oh, my God, but can you hit can you hit a note? Like, not even the, not even the notes that she's hitting. Another thing about this musical that is a great strength is as a songwriter, you are supposed to write to your character's voice. Lerner is able to switch on a dime completely the way these characters sing from each character. So everything that Higgins does is these internal rhymes and very clever word plays and very fast. And when we get to Eliza singing, that's not how she is at all. And like, it's okay for Higgins to sound like he's showing off, like it's the lyricist showing up because that's his personality. And Higgins establishes um, in the end of the song, he says, oh, by the way, language, it's God, he's all his review, all his views are repulsive. But okay, Higgins has this these messed up views on class where he says it's language that keeps a person down. And for example, take this flower lady. If she were speaking the way that I do, 
she wouldn't be in the gutter anymore. She would be a noblewoman, or if she spoke English even better, she could have a middle-class retail job, which is a, a funny joke. So he and the other rich dude that she was selling to, it turns out, is Colonel Pickering, who is also a linguist, and they were going to and from India to try to meet each other and luckily met each other in the middle. Let the coincidence go. And the real romance in this musical is between Pickering and Higgins. Um, Higgins invites Pickering to stay with him. He mentions his address. Eliza overhears it. This is important. Higgins also gives her a bunch of money. He calls her really awful things. Like, if you made a supercut of the things he called her, they're hurtful, damaging things, which he doesn't stop calling her for the whole musical. The number one thing that he calls her more than anything else is baggage. Ouch. Yeah. All right. So now, though, somebody gets an I Want song. Ooh, who is it? Who gets an I Want song? It's Eliza Doolittle. And that song is Wouldn't It Be Loverly. That song is loverly. And speaking of people singing in their, in their own voices, this is another pitch-perfect example of that. And, you know, this is something that's different from the musical to the play, is the play has her... I mean, she in both, she's sort of this wild thing that's... The transformation is not just the way she speaks, it's the way she acts and the way she seems to feel. And it's the way, but this is sort of showing us no, it's really the way she's able to express herself because we get a sort of sensitive, friendly, quieter, subdued side to Eliza in this song. And all she wants is simple things is maybe a man, maybe some chocolate. So in the next scene, we meet her father. A lot of people just running into each other. Her father is a good for nothing. So Higgins is a jerk and we're supposed to kind of like him for it. Doolittle is a jerk and we do like him for it. He is so much more likable than Higgins. Maybe it's because life is a little bit more difficult for him. But he's also terrible. Oh, he's terrible. He runs into her and she's like, I'm not giving you any money. And he's like, I was just saying hi. Also, can I have some money? And then she gives him money. I don't know why she does that. And then we move on to the next song, which is one that I never really understood when I was a kid, but it's with a little bit of luck. And it is all about how you can be a terrible, drunken jerk, and you can totally get away with it. Yeah, what's not to understand? I mean, I don't know. I guess I didn't quite catch the part about, like, you're supposed to raise your kids and provide for them, but if you're lucky, you can get them to provide for you. And it's like, wait a minute. I remember when he's like, the Lord above made liquor for temptation. I remember being to our parents, oh, that makes sense. And they're like, no, that's not, no, don't take that literally. So... One of the reasons this is a perfect musical, like you have Oklahoma where there's the A plot, the B plot, and then sort of C plots sort of in diminishing returns of importance. And this musical, it's not that it only has one plot, but it's really good at taking breaks from the A plot when needed and making those breaks feel warranted. Doolittle is not important. We don't need the song from him, but it is so fun and it gets us away from Higgins and Eliza for five gosh darn minutes, that is worth it. So here's an interesting fact that I basically stole from Wikipedia, which is that Rodgers and Hammerstein tried to adapt Pygmalion into a musical, and they couldn't pull it off Oh yeah, I because saw the structure did not fit the classic musical romantic comedy. Who's the main romantic couple? Who's the secondary romantic couple? Like, they were very used to, a, at this point especially, the particular structure that musicals are supposed to take, and... This show, like you said, like radically breaks down that structure. Also, we'll get to stuff about um, the ensemble and the role of the ensemble. I mean, we have a little bit of that in Wouldn't It Be Loverly, of Eliza's friends sort of supporting her dream and saying it's their own dream. 
too, but there's not the sort of Greek chorus of musical theater ensemblists that we get in, say, a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical. So it's the next day, and Pickering and Higgins, who I would like to point out that Higgins refers to them as, quote, confirmed bachelors, unquote. I'm just being silly, and there's nothing going on there, and it's a musical from the 50s. <laughs> but so much of this musical is like, what's better than dudes? Dudes being guys. All right, so Eliza shows up. She just shows uh. up at... Higgins home and crashes his and Pickering's little male English imperialist bonding party. And she says, I heard you say that you could help me elevate my station. If you teach me how to talk, I'll pay you for lessons. And then I can go work in a proper flower shop. So they have this awful dynamic where Higgins is really mean to her. She gets hysterically upset in response. And then Pickering is just kind of like, well, well, everybody calm down. Pickering is just sort of there. Also, at one point, Eliza's like, Pickering's the best. No, Pickering is comparatively not abusive. He is just as terrible as Higgins in some ways. So Higgins and Pickering construct a bet. And the bet is that in three to six months, Higgins can pass Eliza off as nobility just by tutoring her. And Pickering will pay for it. Do they actually establish, is there anything actually being wagered here? Are they just sort of like, for an I told you so? You know, I don't really know, and I don't think it really matters. But they keep talking about the bet, and I'm like, who is going to have to like walk naked into Covent Square? Okay, you stole that from She's All That. I've never seen She's All That. But She's All That, also the story of Pygmalion. So then what Higgins does is essentially kidnaps Eliza, forces her into indentured servitude. He's like, all right, Mrs. Pierce, who is his awesome housekeeper take off her clothes burn them and go out and buy her new clothes and set up a room for her to stay and eliza is at best begrudgingly going along with this she is not into this so this is another thing where the sort of like the sexual aspect comes in is pickering goes so higgins is she going to be like your mistress because i'm not comfortable with that and higgins is like ugh, no but other than the fact that they are not going to be having a romantic or sexual relationship, that's what the setup is, is that he says, I don't need to pay her any money. I will just feed her and clothe her, and she will live in my house and be my property. He talks about her explicitly like she's property, and it's so messed up. It's almost like the musical shouldn't end with them getting together. Almost. Oh, boy. So, I'm an ordinary man. You take it, Izzy. I need a second. <laughs> so, then Higgins sings his I Am song called I'm an Ordinary Man, but I was an ordinary, patient, kind man who's, you know, wouldn't hurt a fly, but when women are involved, oh boy, does he hate women. In my notes, I called this misogyny song number one. He just hates women. Like, explicitly out there, he's going to sing a song about how terrible women are and how women are dumb and men are so great. Uh, and he, he tells Eliza that she has that. no feelings. Ugh. So it's okay to have a character who's this bad, depending on how the musical treats him. And there's a little thing in the song. At the end of the song, he turns on all his voice equipment very fast, and it sounds like women chattering, which is supposed to drive him sort of mad. And it's a cool effect technologically, I guess sort of the precursor to the dictaphone, hey, there are you with the stars in your eyes. But it's... It's sort of condoning what he's saying. Like, yeah, listen to how annoying this is. That's what women sound like. 
but this, the lyrics are so great. Oh, 100%. Wait I prefer a, minute. a I new edition of the Spanish Inquisition than to ever let a woman in my life. I'm a very gentle man, even-tempered and good-natured, who you never hear complain, who has the milk of human kindness by the court in everything. <laughs> I'd be equally as willing for a dentist to be drilling. And this is an Edwardian dentist that we're talking about. He does really? not. He does not like women. So then a few days later, Doolittle finds out that Eliza has been taken to live in this fancy part of town by a care of Professor Higgins, and she wanted her things sent over, but she didn't want any clothes sent over. And all of her Cockney friends are like, oh, she's going to be someone's mistress. And Doolittle is elated. So this is something else interesting. This musical has a lot of reprises. There's a solid amount of songs, but not a huge amount of songs. But almost every song gets a reprise because they're all good enough to merit one. Mm -hmm. So we actually get our reprise here of with, with a little bit of luck. Doolittle says, oh, you know what? I'm proud of Eliza for moving up and up in the world. And this is an opportunity for me. And Doolittle shows up at Higgins' home in a weird scene where Doolittle says, if you want my daughter, she's my daughter, so therefore I own her, so give me five pounds for her. And Pickering is like, I don't think I'm comfortable, okay, because Pickering is the worst. But Doolittle does make this really great monologue, also from the Shah, about how he's undeserving poor, and it's this sort of satirical, more pointed in terms of class than the play is. We talked about the discrepancy a little bit. Doolittle sort of keeps the spirit of the Shah in that respect, and he talks about how he wants five pounds. It's just enough for a spree. It's not too much that he has to worry about actually moving up the socioeconomic ladder. And also he is not married to Eliza's quote-unquote stepmother because essentially when in this non-married relationship, he still has to do all the things a husband does, but at least maintains his freedom. Um, to go drink and sleep around. Oh, my God. If you just listen to this cast recording you really don't get these like deep satirical notes right because they just borrowed them from shaw right and and it also makes the way that they did kind of try to fit it into a more classic like romantic comedy framework even weirder and the songs don't do the pointed political stuff with a little bit no. of luck maybe slightly but for the most part not really honestly i feel like the songs really just kind of add a little bit of a note of like emotional exclamation yeah, at the that, end of like existing in in classical musical sense right which is actually weird because you know you were talking about how this is 20 years after oklahoma and i feel like the songs do less to carry the plot along than they do in oklahoma arguably yes yes yeah i feel like the structure of the play is already so strong that they just kind of can like insert these little songs here and there to add like I don't know. Emphasis. So we see what Higgins tutoring Eliza looks like, which is completely emotionally abusing her and physically abusing her because he withholds food from her if she doesn't do well enough in lessons. And he said the only point of her staying there, he said, oh, we don't need to give her money because we'll be clothing her and feeding her. Jesus, like, does she develop Stockholm Syndrome? Is that what happens? I don't know. Anyway. anyway. But she does not like him yet. And Izzy, why don't you tell us about the next song? Oh, boy. This is one of my favorites. This is Just You Wait. Where Eliza Doolittle sings. Just you white. Which is about, she sings about how, you know, Henry Higgins is, like, he's going to get his. And then suddenly she, she shifts to this, like, aspirational part about how, you know, one day she is going to be prim and proper, but not She'll go to St. James so often she will call it St. Jim. Yeah, and the king will call her in and say, the 20th of May is Liza Doolittle Day. And what does she want? She wants Henry Higgins killed. 
<laughs> and, and so they put him up against the wall, and she gets to say, ready, aim, fire. And they gun down Henry Higgins in this amazing fantasy sequence. And in the movie, you see it happen. Yep. And it was so upsetting. Like, Rex Harrison falls down on the ground dead. By the way, is it Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire or Hertford, Hereford, and Hampshire? Hertford, Is Hereford, it Hertford? Because it's spelled H-E-R-T, whatever. Um, one of it, So she has all these word exercises she's supposed to say, like in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire, hurricanes hardly ever happen, or... How kind of you to let me come. I like how proud of my, I am of myself of being able to say these things. It's like... Hold on a minute. As Higgins said, in some places, English has completely, completely disappeared, such as in America. Right. In America, they haven't used it in years. And in the, in the Shaw, I believe he references tutoring Americans because they don't... They can't speak English. So we have our next song, which is the Servant's Chorus. This is the closest we get to sort of the Greek chorus type of commentary on the action and the fascinating thing about it is this is an ironic song but so mrs pierce even though she's very respectable and skeptical of eliza she does take henry higgins to task because he's rude at one point he explains to eliza no no i wasn't rude to you because a flower girl i'm just rude to everybody which i have heard way too many times from guys who wanted to go out with me uh, <laughs> it's okay are we up to, to the next song yet well, we have poor Professor Higgins, where the professors are saying, oh, it's so hard to professor. It's like, he doesn't eat or sleep. And meanwhile, we see Eliza wasting away because she's being emotionally tortured. Like, And this is the thing where we're supposed to think Pickering is any nicer. There's a scene where Pickering and Higgins are sharing pastries while Eliza is going mad. And they're both keeping it from her. Oh, I do want to say... There's a scene where Higgins tells her to put marbles in her mouth to speak around them. And I had a minor speech impediment and was in speech therapy for a bunch of years. And so we, did I. I remember when we first got assigned the assignment where it was like you're doing it with Cheerios. I was like, it's like the marbles in My Fair Lady. All right. Okay, the rain in Spain. The rain in Spain? Where, what, what does it do? Uh, it falls. Where does it fall? Uh, maybe on the plane. Wait, is it it's singular? Oh, right, sorry, on the plane. Also, in Marie's Crisis, if you sing on the plane rather than in the plane, you will get in a lot of trouble. Also, I thought the song was about airplanes when we were young. This was another thing about learning this musical at a young age. I didn't yeah. understand plane as a body of land. Um, but for whatever reason, Eliza finally something just snaps, <laughs> for better or for worse, and she's suddenly, it clicks into place, and she's able to do all the things she's been trying to do, the central moment in the song of which is that she can say, the rain in Spain stays mainly in the plain. Hooray! Hooray! And they all sing and dance about it, and it's so much fun. Um, it's really cool how whenever this musical gets translated into different languages, it takes a lot of creative translation to try to figure out how to translate this into a phrase that basically means the same thing, but it's difficult to say in that language. Do you have any examples? I do. How about in Hebrew? Barad, ah, oh God, okay, my Hebrew's not good enough to pull this off. Do it. Barad yarad bidrom sfarad ha'erev. That's actually not that far off of a translation. Yeah, it's, it's hail fell in southern Spain this evening. So um, at the end of the song, Higgins goes, Eliza was such a success, I'm going to take her to Ascot, to my mother's private box at the races, to try her out. And Higgins and Pickering is like, oh... And Higgins is like, yeah, let's do it. Let's get her a nice dress. Let's do it. Isn't it weird that, like, the horse racing track is a fancy thing? Yeah, well, that, that is where we will get to the lyrical dissonance, as it were. Um, 
these are two amazing, fantastic, top-tier musical theater songs, and there's like two minutes of dialogue maybe in between them. They're back-to-back. And what is the second one? It's I Could Have Danced All Night. It's just a lovely song where Eliza's so elated. Oh, my God. The servants, a la Maria's friends in I Feel Pretty, are sort of being like, calm your tits. And Eliza's like, no, my tits are not calm. Anyway, it's a beautiful song. Yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful song. The fascinating thing about this is this is the first time we're supposed to think that Eliza likes Higgins and not just the work that they're doing. I only know when he began to dance with me, I could have danced all night. The idea there is supposed to be that she doesn't realize that she might be falling for him, but we, the audience, do. And that's the one thing that ruins the song. Out of context, it's just a beautiful song. In context, it's like, hmm. And it's okay to use sort of flowery language, like my heart took flight because it's the dancing and lightness imagery and it, it works for the character and it works for the moment. You don't even mind it. All right, uh, we're at the horse track. Here we are at Ascot. Uh, by the way, Z, what is your favorite generic rich person name in this musical? Uh, I prefer the Boxingtons myself. I do too. Um, but I'm also partial to, uh, what was that, Brewster Budgeon? I believe so. So we're at the race, and we meet Mrs. Higgins, who is Henry's mom. She's the best. Oh, yeah. She's the best person in this musical. In fact, there's interesting that there's this nature-nurture thing when Higgins turned out to be such a jerk when he was raised by such an awesome lady. So I know that Shaw has these weird sort of Freudian ideas about that. But considering that he's like, oh, you know, anyone can be shaped to be whatever it is, his mom is this awesome, fantastic woman, and he seems to tolerate her fine, but he hates all women. As Shaw said... When Higgins excused his indifference to young women on the ground that they had an irresistible rival in his mother, he gave the clue to his inveterate old bachelordom. Can't we just say he's gay? I know he's not, but it would be so much easier to deal with. So yeah, Pickering sort of explains to Mrs. Higgins what's going on. She is like, what? So we do have the Ascot Gavotte. Oh, listen to that internal rhyme. And this is a song that has lyrical dissonance because it's all the rich people singing about things like pulses racing, r- pulses rushing, faces flushing, heartbeats speed up, I have never been so keyed up, and they're like chanting it in a monotone, and it's pretty funny. It's this is the pre- least memorable song in the musical, but it's just because it's supposed to be bland and staid. Mm-hmm. So does Eliza make a good impression on all the rich people? Eliza is amazing. First of all, Higgins is really rude. Higgins shows up, sees his mom and his mom's friends, and is just like, okay, I'm leaving. I don't like any of you. But Eliza essentially regurgitates what she has learned to the letter, but not the spirit of it. She can say all the right things, but sort of like a parrot spitting things out. They're not always relevant. And Higgins and Pickering have been talking about what they're dressing up Eliza as. And Mrs. Higgins says... You're a pretty pair of babies playing with your live doll. And that was my favorite line in the entire musical. And you know who wrote that line? It was Shaw. Yeah. So Eliza, because she's speaking in a well-bred fashion, the rich people are a little bit confused by her low-bred content, like about how her gin was like mother's milk to her late aunt. And Freddie is there. Freddie's back. And Freddie's like, this is the coolest lady I've ever met. 
where Higgins is like, only talk about the weather and people's health. And she's like, got it. So I'm pretty sure someone killed my aunt to steal her hat. And in Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire, hurricanes hardly ever happen. So, of course, this gets to one of the most famous moments in the musical. When she gets so caught up in the horse race and she's told that she's betting on Dover that she gets up and screams, Come on, Dover, move your bloomin' ass! That is pretty great. Lord and Lady Boxington are staggered, say the stage directions. (laughs) (laughs) What? Do their monocles pop right out of their eyes? But which is great is that this brings us to the next scene and Freddy... Freddie shows up somehow to where she lives, tries to go inside. Eliza says she doesn't want to see anyone ever again. And Freddie's like, why? She was magnificent. And magnificent is exactly the right word to describe how she was. It's almost like Freddie loves her for who she is. Almost. So guess what happens now, Izzy? Guess what? I have often walked down down this street before. I would like to present this song for my favorite lyric in advance because it's, oh, it's so you. romantic and like purple, but it's so beautiful. Here it is about, about he's singing about his heart again and it's fine. My heart went on a journey to the moon oh, it's so, when she talked about her father and the gin. So what's interesting about this song, similar to Loverly and other songs in this musical, is their songs that became standards and people forgot that there's a little intro part to the song. It's like Somewhere Over the Rainbow has that part of the beginning before Somewhere Over the Rainbow that people don't bother to sing. Mm. But the beginning part here, when he's talking about what he likes about her specifically, it's it's lovely and every... I just want to squeeze every ounce out of this song. And like the key change. Oh, it's great. When he Even says, though they rhyme feeling with feeling, it's still amazing. We haven't been giving enough props to the score here, to low. I mean, but to be when honest, he sings think... the overpowering feeling, just the way he sings it is so overpowering. The assumption we've been working from is the score is impeccable. Like, the lyrics are funny and the internal rhymes are great, but the score is, I don't know, it's unforgettable. It was an overpowering feeling. And oh, that towering feeling. Anyway, um, and then Freddie kind of just sleeps on the street where she lives. More time has passed, and Higgins and Pickering are ready to bring Eliza to this party at the embassy. And Pickering's nervous, and Higgins is like, no, it's going to be fine. They're both really nervous. Uh, what happens at the embassy? Why? She dances with the Prince of Transylvania. Who doesn't turn her into a vampire. Who is not uh, Vlad Tepes Dracula. The, the Queen of Transylvania walks by her and just stops and like touches her cheek and is like, lovely. And I'm like, okay, that's a little weird. But yeah, they're at this party, and in addition to Transylvanian royalty being there, we also meet Karpathy. Do you mean Zoltan Karpathy? <laughs> the very same. Karpathy is a really good foil to Higgins because Higgins is brilliant and a bad person fundamentally has his own set of principles. Karpathy's very Hamish. She's very pleasant and friendly and charming, but he's equally as bad in a different way. Is that he, is that Higgins says, you know, say what you will about me, at least I believe in the powers of science or something. I know, it, it doesn't really make any sense, but Karpathy figures out who's faking and likes to blackmail people, essentially. But you forget that Karpathy's a student of Higgins, so... Where yeah, do you and think Higgins you pretends that? not to recognize him. It's great. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where do you think you learned that attitude? That's true. So Act 1 ends with Higgins spends the whole evening sort of trying to keep Karpathy and Eliza apart because if Karpathy hears Eliza, he might see through what untrained ears wouldn't. And Act 1 ends with Karpathy and Eliza dancing together and having, like, an intimate conversation. Dun, dun, dun. 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 
And now it's after the ball's already over and we get a song recapping what happened. It's weird to have like the actual climax of this like tense moment happen basically off stage and then instead Pickering and Higgins sing a song about how they did it. Well, it's it probably called... helps with the set change. And that song is called You Did It. Pickering is just fawning all over his boyfriend in this song, and he says, you're so brilliant. Didn't you bet against him? Didn't you bet on him to fail? And what happened is that Karpathy was so fooled, he says that he discovers that Eliza is a fraud, and she's not English nobility. She is Wait, Hungarian. stop ro- what you're doing. We have to sing it. Every time we looked around, there he was, that hairy hound from Budapest. Never leaving us alone, never have I ever known a ruder pest. <laughs> That's Ava's favorite line and yours. That is a great line. I just wanted to sing the part where we learn what okay. Zoltan Karpathy thinks, which is, and although she may have studied with an expert, dialectician, dialectician and, grammarian, and grammarian, I can tell that she was born Hungarian. Not only Hungarian, but of royal blood. Everyone is rejoicing at how great Higgins is and no one is paying any attention to Eliza. To Imagine Eliza just had the evening of her life. Everyone treated her like a princess and then she comes home and she's back to being a prisoner. And what we learn here in the scene is that in addition to quote-unquote tutoring her, Higgins has also been using her as a secretary essentially. And he says, you know, where the devil are my slippers? What the devil have I done with my slippers? And Eliza throws the slippers at him. And he just has no idea why she's mad. And she says, I won your bet. He says, presumptuous insect, I won it. So here's where the sex work metaphor comes back is Eliza and Higgins have an argument and he says you are you know ungrateful and you're all these awful things he probably calls her baggage at some point and Eliza says what's going to happen to me now and he goes what are you talking about she goes I can't go back to Covent Garden selling flowers on the street like what's supposed to happen he goes uh we'll marry you off I guess and she so and she goes we were above that in Covent Garden and she says I sold flowers I didn't sell myself now you've made a lady of me I'm not fit to sell anything else Mm. and it's it's brutal oh and it's like a scathing critique of like I don't know the intersection between like gender and the class system that like yeah that his whole project has been to make her noble lady but a noble lady is someone who like can't support herself doesn't have the skills to support herself his end game was just the transformation is that she's disposable after that point she no longer serves a use to him and the fact that he's ruined her because he's improved her is so twisted and Eliza starts making some, she finally is standing up to him and she's making some really pointed barbs like, well, can I keep the clothes that were bought for me? I don't want to be accused of stealing anything. And he's, she reprises just you wait, Henry Higgins, of course. And then yeah. goes and then goes to run away and she finds Freddie waiting outside singing reprise of On the Street Where You Live. It says in the stage directions that Freddie has only left his post for changes of clothing, food, and sleep. So wait, Freddie's a rich person though, right? He's a person in society, but Higgins is like, he can't support himself. At one point, Eliza's like, it's okay, that's not really his job. But it, it seems sort of unclear how secure his fortune is. But anyway, he's been sleeping on the street. And he tries to tell her how much he loves her. And he goes to speak, and the world is full of singing, and I am winging higher than the birds. 
touch and my heart begins to crumble the heavens tumble darling and i'm and she just boom and sings show me where she's saying you know stop telling me in all these pretty words how much you love me and actually do something about it and she runs off and he runs after her and next scene we find out that he's taken her in a cab to covent garden and there's a little reprise of loverly going on amongst her old friends and they literally don't recognize her and she really sees that she can't go back and then i think the play's weirdest twist who else happens to be there but her dad in a suit so when her dad shows up at Higgins flat in the first act, Higgins, out of spite, tells Mrs. Pierce to tell this American moralist who's been writing him letters to say that Alfred Doolittle is the best moralist in all of England because he was so impressed by his ironical speech about class. Said American dies, leaves him an income for the rest of his life. and uh, 4,000 pounds a year. 4,000 pounds a year, which has now made Doolittle solidly middle class, which he's very upset about. Part of Doolittle being middle class now is now he has to be somewhat respectable and he marries Eliza's stepmother. But we get a great song out of it. So close attention payers to the podcast who follow us on social media would know that I was recently married. Everyone in my family made a lot of references to this song. We were not married in a church we're Jewish. We weren't even married in a synagogue, but we were still like, get me to the shul on time. And luckily we didn't have to carry dad on a table because he was so drunk. There's onomatopoeia in the song instead of lyrics. If I am whistling, whoot me out of, out the door, you know, however No, no, but he actually whistles it, which neither of us can do. Kick up a rumpus, but don't, don't lose, lose the, the compass. Comp- oh. So he goes off to get married and that's the last we hear of him because that's his like going off to die type of moment. Higgins realizes that Eliza has run away and he's totally panicking because now, because he didn't realize he had grown sort of dependent on her. Is it time for misogynist anthem number two? I always thought the song was called Why Can't a Woman Be More Like a Man? But it's actually called the much punnier name, uh, Him to Him. That's H-Y-M-N to H-I-M. The thing about this song that always confused me when I was really young is he goes, why do women grow up like their mothers? Why can't they grow up like their fathers instead? But then after one generation, it wouldn't matter who they were growing up like. Wow. Real, 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 real hot takes from Gabby. Real, real radical views on gender. coming. Why can't a woman be a chum? <laughs> There's something about this that's a little bit gentleman's guide to love and murder. It's better with a man. Like that might be a satire in part of oh, the song. Oh, it probably is a satire to this. And then Higgins starts asking Pickering. He goes, like, would you be mad if I had a drink? Would you be wounded if I never sent you flowers? What's better than dudes? Dudes being guys. Anyway. So Higgins goes running off to his mother's house because he's upset. And he finds Eliza just, like, having tea with his mom. Eliza and Mrs. Higgins are talking about Henry as if he isn't even there, which is fantastic. And Eliza makes a speech about how uh, what makes a flower girl is it's not who she is or how she speaks. It's the way other people treat her. Oh, well, Higgins treats me as a flower girl. Pickering treats me as a duchess. Comparatively, certainly. Mrs. Higgins leaves the two of them alone and says, Eliza, if my son begins to break things, I give you full permission to have him evicted. Henry, dear, if I were you, I should stick to two subjects, the weather and your health. Mic drop. So Eliza and Higgins argue some more. We get, so without you is to me like, it's like a Beyonce song. It's like an R&B breakup song. It's like a 90s girl power revenge song. It's just so withering 
and mean to him, and he deserves and it. And absolutely British. There'll be crumpets and tea without you. It's almost like in American stereotype what British people are like. Uh, Windsor Castle will still stand without you. It's kind of the opposite of the without you and rent. And the song ends with Higgins interrupting her and saying, I did it. I made a woman. Anyway, he says, Eliza, you're magnificent. He goes, five minutes ago, you were a millstone around my neck. Now you're a tower of strength, a consort battleship. I like you like this. And that is what makes her say goodbye. And she leaves and Higgins is distraught. And Mrs. Higgins says, bravo, Eliza. So now we go right into how it is I've grown accustomed to her face. How did it become a standard? Yeah, it's also kind of a weird last song. This does not end with O-K-L-A-H-O-M-A. I do like how the song starts, damn, 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 damn. Oh, that's great. This is where we have to believe that Higgins has grown capable of loving a person. Um, But also, just so you know, right, after he sings about how he'd be so happy to have her be humiliated, he says, marry Freddie, ha. That's actually the last line in the play. That, that that's a really like brutal end to the, but yeah, I mean, I mean, in a good way of him, the, of him sitting there in his own, the real thing that he created was his own bitter loneliness, and now he has to live with. Ah, it's so good. Can we just can we get a little theater nerdy for a second? No. Ah, sorry. You read A Doll's House by uh, Ibsen, right? Yes. For in case people don't know, that's a play by um, Henrik Ibsen about 19th century marriage norms about a woman. But spoiler alert, the big ending is that she walks out on him and her family and is like, this, this marriage is a, is a farce. Like, she basically turns to the audience and gives this, like, incredibly powerful speech about how, like, she can't be a wife unless she's a human being in her own right. Explicitly, Shaw saw that play and was like, oh, man, I got to do that, too. If it just ends there, you have Higgins sitting by himself, right? Not actually, like, just like Torvald in A Doll's House, not at all like, really aware of, like, what, what, what he did wrong. Right? Perfect ending. But then... Izzy, why don't you summarize very quickly the Shaw ending? In the epilogue. So in the epilogue, Shaw gives a very bizarre, in-depth explanation of why he thinks, in that he's like, Higgins and Eliza can never, ever, ever be together. Here's how I imagine their life going. Eliza marries Freddie, they struggle with money, they open the flower shop, they're not very good at it, they go to like business school, the London School of Economics, they're actually really good at business, they're generally pretty happy, she kind of reconciles with Higgins, she still kind of has this awkward relationship with him because he kind of created her, but they're on better terms now, Higgins can never love anyone because of his mom, like something about Nietzsche, it's like really weird, but basically it's a super in-depth explanation of one, why they can never be together, and two, how Eliza can be perfectly happy without Higgins, and how she must be perfectly happy without Higgins. And I, there's actually one particular line I'd like to read that's incredibly weird, but I think very descriptive. This being the state of human affairs, what is Eliza fairly sure to do when she is placed between Freddie and Higgins? Will she look forward to a lifetime of fetching Higgins' slippers, or to a lifetime of Freddie fetching hers? In the end of the musical, Higgins is sitting alone He's so very alone that he starts listening to a recording he made when Eliza first came into his uh, home. And he listens to himself say awful things to her and her saying that she wants to be a lady in a flower shop. Eliza turns up for real and she says what she first told him, which is, I wash my face and ends before I come, I did. And he goes, Eliza, where the devil are my slippers? 
and the stage directions are, there are tears in Eliza's eyes. She understands. The curtain falls slowly. Now, on Wikipedia, it says, the musical ends on an ambiguous moment of possible reconciliation. No, they get together, and in fact, I would like to read to you the note from the beginning of the libretto by Lerner. Note. Okay, please do. For the published version of Pygmalion, Shaw wrote a preface and an epilogue, which he called a sequel. I have omitted the preface because the information contained therein is less pertinent to My Fair Lady than it is to Pygmalion. I have omitted the sequel because in it, Shaw explains how Eliza ends not with Higgins but with Freddy and, Shaw and heaven forgive me, I am not certain he is right. Oh, Shaw was so upset when people changed the ending during his lifetime. He kept trying to compromise, too. He wrote an alternative ending for the film version. He was like, okay, I've written the concluding sequence. They'll have a tender farewell scene, and the last scene will be Freddie and Eliza happily running a flower shop. And then he, like, went in and saw that they'd not use that and use the ending basically that the musical has. It hasn't been on Broadway uh, since 1993. Um... In the 1957 Tony Awards, it took Best Musical. Rex Harrison took Leading Actor in a Musical. Moss Hart got Direction of a Musical. Uh, and it got Scenic Design, Costume Design, and Conducting slash Musical Direction. Uh, two men split and lost Featured Actor, and Julie Andrews lost Leading Actress. But, and it ran something like six years, which in the 1950s was a really, really long time. Like, this was a smash hit. Izzy, we have your favorite lyric. My favorite lyric is... There he was, that hairy hound from Budapest, never leaving us alone, never have I ever known a Ruderpest. My favorite lyric from was Without You, and it was, you dear friend who talks so well, you can go to Hartford, Hereford, and Hampshire. Oh, that one's great. Because it's the, it's the callback, and then it sounds good, and then it, how it rhymes with hell, and how she's become genteel. All right, so what lyric do you not like? If you force me to choose one, uh, it would have to be from a hymn to him uh-huh. and it's when I start weeping like a bathtub overflowing and carry on as if my home were in a tree like I guess he's calling her a monkey but I don't know it's not his best okay so for my f- least favorite I didn't want to go with one of just the offensive lyrics because you just can't let that get to you it's in show me and it's having your arms hungered for mine please don't explain show me and it's 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 trying to be clever because it rhymes her former pronunciation of, of how she would say the word explain with mine, but it doesn't seem like a good place for her to do that. We've been criticizing the musical a lot, but only because we love it so much, and it, it, it really is perfect. I wouldn't call it one of my, you know, top, top, top tier, but it's objectively one of the most perfect that certainly we've covered on the podcast. Izzy, thank you for coming back on the podcast and for keeping our lovely producer prisoner in the studio in this gorgeous Times Square studio we've really moved up in the world and we will see you at the latest for the Paint Your Wagon episode which will be awesome I recently created created a Twitter account but Twitter scares me so please don't follow me and don't tweet at me Thanks for listening to Pick Little Talk a Little. You can follow us on Twitter at Paltal Podcast, as in P A L T A L. Email us at paltalpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. Pick a little, talk a little. We are produced and edited by the incomparable Rachel Jacobs. You can find her at rachel jacobs.com or on Twitter at WTF RJK. 
I've been your host, Gabrielle Gazelowitz. I'm at GabrielleGazelowitz.com, which is spelled in a way that you probably wouldn't guess. And I'm on Twitter at Gabby Gazelowitz. So see if you can find me. So until next time, and as they say in a chorus line, kiss today goodbye and point me towards tomorrow. Um, did you know that George Bernard Shaw um, coined a term for believing that Shakespeare was overrated? Did you know George Bernard Shaw believed that apostrophes were not necessary and he wrote contractions without them and possesses without them and believed the E should be dropped off the end of Shakespeare? Did you know that George Bernard Shaw, in his will, left all of his money to the, pro- to the project of replacing the English alphabet with a 40-letter phonetic alphabet? Did you know that George Bernard Shaw went sat next to John Stamos on a plane and he told him he was pretty? But, Shaw fact. Uh, you know, Shaw removed the U's from words like color because he thought the original, that the real original spelling was simply C-O-L-O-R. He was such a weird pedant. He was pedantic about someone, like, anyway. Not he important. sounds like he was real fun at parties. And then Stephen Sondheim wrote a musical about it. For so- example, did you know that in the afterward, you might think, wow, Alfred Doolittle, Eliza's dad, sure is a jerk. No, he actually has a Nietzschean, what is his phrase? One second. A Nietzschean transcendence of good and evil. Do you know that? <laughs> okay, wait, we sorry. haven't even started. We've been recording for six and a half minutes and we haven't even started the plot of the musical.